Today's scripture reading is First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 to 58. First Corinthians chapter 15, verse 50 to 58. Now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We sh- shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised, incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought past, saying, That is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who has given us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always, abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Dear Heavenly Father, thanks for this day. You know, the weather's not that great. Pray that uh, you'll give us all safety on our rides home. I pray for our pastor as he preaches through this passage that it will touch our hearts and move our lives. In Jesus' name. <laughs> Just got a promotion, apparently. Good morning. It's great to be here uh, once again. Uh, Connie and I and the boys have some meetings coming up in various churches uh, throughout the state, uh, and we have some trips coming up, but so far we have not actually bought tickets for any of our trips yet, so um, we don't have any hard and fast dates, but it's always a pleasure to get to be here when we get to be here, and um, it's a privilege to preach this passage uh, this morning. A few weeks ago, we had a snowstorm on a Sunday. Um, imagine that. Uh, and so we, we had the service on Saturday night, and so I preached the beginning of chapter 15. And now, Jamie's asked me to preach the end of chapter 15. Here at South Hope Community, we, we believe that a man who lived 2,000 years ago and died 2,000 years ago came back to life and lives today. Because we believe in the bodily, the physical resurrection of Jesus Christ. That, that the, the grave that is empty is not just empty because the body rotted away or because someone stole the body or animals took the body. The grave is empty because Christ is alive. Not as a ghost, not as some spiritual or legendary figure, but truly alive, truly lives today. We also believe that even though we may die, 
that we also will be resurrected, that we will come back to life physically. Our bodies will be resurrected from the dead. That is a, a, a firm, a foundational belief of Christianity and a foundational belief of this church. And this chapter is dedicated to this truth. This long chapter in 1 Corinthians is, is thoroughly going through the truths and the implications of the resurrection. Of our resurrection. The, to review, we start the chapter with the facts of the resurrection. Paul just goes through very, very clearly, very concisely, this is what happened when Christ was resurrected. Verses 3 and 4, in particular, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Paul encapsulates this and goes through these facts and then talks of all the people who saw Christ alive. We spoke of this this morning uh, in Sunday school. We talked about Christ on the Emmaus Road talking to his to two disciples. They, they saw Him. At first they didn't know it was Him. Christ was having some fun, I think. And He's just so thrilled. He's, it's, it's, the victory's been won. And so, he then reveals himself, who he is. And they realize who he is. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't just these two disciples. It was 500 at one time. Many, many people. Many people who were still alive when Paul wrote this had were eyewitnesses of the risen Savior, of the risen Lord. They saw Him die, they knew He was dead, and then they saw Him alive. Paul says that his whole work, his whole ministry, is founded on this truth, on, on the truth of the Gospel, and the truth of the resurrection. And that this truth completely transformed what he was doing, that he was persecuting the church, but that the truth of the gospel, the truth that Christ died for our sins, was buried and then rose again, completely transformed him, changed him, so he dedicated his effort, his life, and risked his life because he knew for a fact that this was true. Then Paul makes the argument... That if, if we do not rise from the dead, then the Christian life is meaningless. That it, it discounts Christ's resurrection from the dead, because if we don't rise from the dead, then the, the purpose or the accomplishment, the thing that, that Christ's resurrection was to accomplish, didn't, didn't get accomplished if we don't rise from the dead. It didn't work. It didn't complete its work. And so, if, if this is all there is, and when we die, it's just over, and we aren't resurrected, and there's no eternity, then we should be pitied as fools. What are we doing this for? What are we living for? What are we putting our faith in? There's no, there's no hope. 
in eternity if there's no resurrection. So he, he walks through how this is meaningless. Paul, I mean, think of what Paul is doing. We're going from town to town, risking his life, giving his life, getting stoned, getting thrown in prison, getting whipped, getting, getting beaten, shipwrecked, all of that. It's meaningless. If it just ends, if we just die, what's the point? That's not the point. But there is a point. There is a point because the resurrection is true. And the third section here, there's the, the work of Christ. Christ's resurrection is the guarantee of our new genesis, of our new life, of our resurrection. Christ's resurrection ensures our resurrection. We know it can happen because it already has happened. Christ was raised from the dead. So we can be raised from the dead. And His resurrection is our guarantee of that. Our assurance of that. Now we get down to verses 50 through 58. I want to point out three, three sections as we work through this passage. Jamie, can you advance the, the slide here? The three sections are the process or how uh, the process of our resurrection or how our resurrection works. Second is the victory through our resurrection. And then third, the confidence in our resurrection. So the process, the victory, and the confidence of our resurrection. Let's look in verse 50, starting verse 50. Now I say, brethren, now this I say, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither does corruption inherit corruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. When Paul uses the term mystery, he's talking about something that was hidden before, but he's revealing now. He's not saying that this is some mystical thing. He's saying that it, it, we didn't understand it before, but now I'm, going to, I'm revealing what was unknown previously. There were obviously questions about the resurrection. How is this going to work? How does this, it doesn't make any sense. You bury somebody, their body starts to decay. Are their bones going to be resurrected? What is that going to look like? When I was a little kid, uh, growing up in Sebec Corner, Pastor Hill, we were just newly saved, and I was saved at, at four, and so probably when I'm six years old, Pastor Hill is preaching about souls being saved, and souls in heaven. And I began to picture, build up a picture in my mind. What would it look like for all these souls floating around heaven? What is that, what is that like? And so, in my six-year-old mind, as I'm trying to piece this together, do any of you remember the advertisements at the backs of comic books? Remember the 98-pound weakling? 
that one, Charles Atlas tells you. All of you, the YouTube generation, you just you don't know what you're missing out on the comic book advertisements. Okay? If anybody's wondering about Charles Atlas's exercise, it was isometrics. Uh, the, uh, what was the, there was, there was another one. Oh, the x-ray glasses. They don't work. Um, <laughs> but sea monkeys. Does anybody remember sea monkeys? Did anybody have sea monkeys? Yes. Some of you had, did anybody actually, did they ever live? Did they actually, no, they did not live. There are people on the internet apparently who, yes, sea monkeys, it did work for some few people. In my mind, when I was picturing all these souls that were saved and all these souls that went to heaven, sea monkeys is what I came up with. Okay, that was my picture of what a soul would look like without the body around it. So maybe, maybe in Corinth, I mean, there's shrimp in, in the Mediterranean, uh, maybe they were thinking, you know, what are we going to look like? Sea monkeys? I mean, this doesn't make any sense, this resurrection thing, because we know what happens to a body when it dies. What's it going to look like? So Paul is, is very, in a very uh, clear way, he's saying, no, our bodies are going to be transformed. They are like the physical body. They are identifiable as ourselves. People could identify Christ as Christ. They knew Him. They knew who He was. But it was an incorruptible body. You see, Christ took on flesh. He took on corruption. He took on a body that could be killed. That could die. That could be wounded. And it was. And he died from those wounds. But you look at this. This passage is saying that corruption takes on incorruption. He's revealing that, okay, uh, we are going to, that the corruptible body cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. Something has to happen. A transformation has to take place. We, we can't get into heaven like this. Then he addresses a, another issue, 51 here. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. We can assume that there was this question. Well, some of us are alive, some of us are dead. So how does that work? Do you have to die? Or if, if Christ comes back, are we just all going to instantly die and then we get to be resurrected? Because... This doesn't. So they're trying to make sense of this. This is the this is the life verse for all nursery workers. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Okay, that's every every nursery worker's favorite verse. The they wish they would all sleep, but it's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the fact that some of us will be alive. Believers, there will be believers that are alive when Christ comes back. So how is that going to work? If we don't die, how does that happen? He goes on further. In a moment, an instant, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. We shall be transformed. For this corruptible, this, this flesh, 
must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So what he's saying is that our corruptible flesh, our flesh that is decaying, is falling apart, is weak, it's going to put on incorruptibility. You see, as soon as you're born, you start dying. Your cells die. They're restored. But even as a child grows, there's, there's a death process that's taking place. Why? Because this is a corruptible body. Now, can you imagine... Right now, my body works against me. I had something really, really neat happen the other day. Um, back in, when I was 16, on Main Street in Warren, I was skateboarding, and it's really kind of a steep hill. It's not a good place to ride a skateboard. And I tried a trick, and I destroyed my shoulder in the process. Ever since then, when, and then I ended up having surgery and all of this, And ever since then, when I would go to throw a ball, about halfway through the throw, my arm would just do whatever it wanted to do. I'd be thinking, I'd be looking, and and then it would just, like, what are you doing? You're working against me. You're not helping me. You're making it worse. And lately, um, I've been exercising... And doing a lot of shoulder work. And the other day I was out in the gym and I pick up a basketball and I'm at the three point line and I shoot and it went in. And I was like, my arm is working. It's working with me. It's helping me do what I want to do instead of hindering what I want to do. Our bodies, because of corruption, they work against us. They're breaking down. They don't, they don't work the way we want them to. As you get older, your knees just like fight you. And, and they, they break down because it's corruptible. Now imagine the opposite of corruption. Okay? Not just incorruption of, oh, it's all going to stay the same. But the actual opposite. That your body works for you, with you. That you're this, it, it increases. Instead of decreasing, instead of pulling you down and you're, you're struggling to keep it up, that it's actually assisting you, getting stronger, getting better. It, we're putting on incorruption. Mortality puts on immortality. And if you're wondering how this can be, think of the time in Scripture where the opposite happened. Adam was created perfect. His body was for him. His, it, it, it was incorruptible. It was perfectly good. But sin, sin came in. And with it, death came in. 
And that incorruptible man turned into a corruptible man, a mortal man. That immortality turned into mortality. When Christ returns, our mortality turns into immortality. Our corruption turns into incorruption. We are made new. We are transformed. We are made ready to inherit the kingdom of God. That is that's the process of resurrection. Now, the victory, the victory of resurrection through resurrection. This this section is just full, full, full. We could spend a long time here. Middle of verse thirty four fifty four. Then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written. Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? What's, how, what's Paul saying here? He's, he's quoting from Hosea. He's saying that it's going to be brought to pass. It's going to happen. That through our resurrection, through this moment, through this trump, through Christ calling us home, And transforming us, there's a taunt, a taunting of death. Listen to this. Oh, death, where is your sting? Huh? Where is it now? You think you're strong? No way! You're not strong, death. You have no sting, you have no poison. You've got nothing. Oh, grave, where's your victory? Where is it? What do you have? You've got nothing on me. You've got nothing on my Savior. You've got nothing on my King because He's defeated you. Colossians 2 says that Christ defeated the powers of death, the principalities and powers. He defeated them and made a show of them openly, mocking them. Paul is, is, is doing the same thing here. He's just, what do you have, death? You have nothing on me. Today we sang, no guilt in life, no fear in death. How can we sing that? Because of the resurrection. The confidence, the assurance that we have in the resurrection. The victory that we have in the resurrection. It's it's there. Look at these two phrases. O death, where is thy sting? O grave. Or O hell, where is thy victory? Turn with me to Revelation chapter 1. Verse 18. Revelation chapter 1, verse 18. First, second, third, John, Jude, Revelation 1, 18. This is Christ speaking. I am he that liveth and was dead. 
Amen for that. And behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen. And have the keys of hell and of death. You see, His resurrection, He was dead. He is now alive. He has the keys of death and hell on His belt. Oh, death, where is your sting? Where's your poison? Where's your strength? Where's your power? You have no hold on me because I have Jesus. That's why. And He has won the victory over death. And He has won the victory over the grave. And He has won the victory over hell. Now look at back in chapter 15. Paul explains how this is true in verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. The sting of death, so we just said, O death, where is thy sting? The sting of death is sin. The strength of sin is the law. Let's explain this, okay. What he's saying is, death, if we just look at death, we can think of it as a biological process, that our bodies are breaking down and getting slower and slower, and eventually, with enough time or enough trauma, they break down to the point of death. But he's saying it's not just that. There's way more. Because death was not the way creation began. Death is not what we were made for. Sin is the poison. Sin is the sting, the deadly poison that brings death is sin. The sting of death is sin. Because if you, if you wanted a full explanation of this, this phrase, this, the sting of death is sin and the strength of sin is the law, you can just write this right here in your margin, you can just say, see Romans. The whole book, especially chapters 1 through 5, that's, that's the explanation of death, sin, law. How these things all link together. I'm not going to explain all of Romans this morning. But, let's try to break this down a little more. The sting of death is sin, because sin is what brought death about. A few weeks ago, when I was speaking on Saturday night, I I, uh, talked about how Buddhism tries to solve the problem of suffering. Hinduism tries to solve the problem of karma. Or what, you know, you do good, you get good, you do bad, you get bad, and how what goes around comes around, and it comes around in the next life on top of you. And so it tries to solve that problem. Islam tries to solve the, the problem of pride. They solve that through submission. Christianity, however, tries to, or see, solves the problem of sin 
and death. See, this morning we were talking to little children about sin and death. We are singing about sin and death. Somebody from outside could come in and say, what are you doing talking to to kids about sin and death? Well, that's, that's what Christ solves. Sin and death. Because if, if we are not concerned with our sin and our death, then most likely we are not concerned with Christ. Because that is what He was concerned with. That's what He is addressing. That brokenness that Nick talked about this morning, that, that come, came into this world because of sin. And the only true solution for it is through Christ. This chapter is particularly focused on sin. Sin, The word sin and uh, references to it, it's referenced nine times in the book of 1 Corinthians. Four of those nine times are in chapter 15. He's talking about the defeat of sin, that it was necessary that Christ, verse 3, Christ died for... Our sins. That's why he died. Christ did not come to save the righteous, but to call sinners to repentance. That's what he came for. This this final problem. This final brokenness. Certainly, these other religions, is pride a brokenness? Yes. Is suffering a brokenness? Yes. Those things, those things do need to be solved, but they are not. They are not our true problem. Our true problem is our sin and the death that results from it. Now, moving on to the law. Whose law is this? This is God's law. The strength of sin is the law. The authority is the law. What is it? How does how does that connect? If I say, if I say that something is a sin, and you say that something else is a sin, then it has your what you say has no authority over me, and what I say has no authority over you. Then I'm just saying, okay, well. You know, I think these things are bad and you think those things are bad and who's to say who's right? Maybe I think it's okay to come to your house and take your things and take your family. Big deal. Who says it's wrong? You see, there's no strength behind us saying what's right and wrong. I can call it a law if I want to, but doesn't really make it a law. There's no authority behind that. The funny thing is, though, uh, Mervyn was talking about witnessing to somebody this weekend and how he said he just stands on his own. The problem is, we can't even keep our own standard. Think about all the times that we say somebody ought to do something. Oh, a good driver? A good driver uses his blinker. And then, we go to turn. 
Sometimes we forget to turn on our blinker. Sometimes we don't signal as soon as we should. A good father would take care of his children better. A good, a good husband would take better care of his wife. A good friend would call. A good friend would visit. And then we don't do it. Even in our own minds, our own standards, we can't keep up to our own standards. But there's a greater standard. There's God's standard. His perfect standard of holiness. And so what God calls sin is sin. And now sin has strength, has authority, because the law exposes sin to us and says, you know what? This is wrong. Why is it wrong? Not because I say so. Because God says so. And that, that sin, that violation of God's law, brings with it a death sentence. And that death sentence results in an eternity of torture of hell. It brings with it an eternity that is separated from the Creator and spent suffering and paying for sin. You see, this is what the law sets up. That the law sets it up that our sin condemns us to hell. And that's why sin and death are truly our biggest problem. Truly, the thing that needs to be solved for mankind is the fact that we are lost and dying in our sin and headed for eternal destruction in hell. That's where our sin ends up because God's standard has been violated. Verse 57. But thanks be to God which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. The victory over sin and death and hell has been won by our Savior. Look at these three things that we just went through. The law, sin, and death. In Christ's life, He fulfills, He completes the law. In Christ's death, He pays for our sin. In Christ's resurrection, He wins victory over death. The law, sin, and death, all three of those things are taken care of in the person and work and the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Do you see how that fits together? How all three of those things are standing against us. And Christ tears each and every one of them down. His perfect life. His substitutionary death in our place for our sin. 
and his resurrection that crushes death, puts it under his feet, and he mocks it, he openly makes fun of it. This is our Savior. Jesus Christ. And He's given us that victory. That victory is ours. And we know that because He has been resurrected, that for those of us who put our faith in His death for our sins, and His resurrection to defeat our death, we put our trust in that, then that victory becomes ours. That resurrection, that new life, is mine. Because my hero, my Jesus, has won it for me. That's what that's this victory that, that Paul is talking about here, that we have this confidence, and that's why it's so important that the church at Corinth that we believe, yes, I am going to be resurrected. Why? Because Christ, my Savior, was resurrected. And that is the assurance that the the, the standing, the judgment, the condemnation that stands against me has been defeated. And I know it. Because Christ is alive. That's how I know it's been defeated. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren. Therefore. So he's, he's given us this entire argument. This whole thing. About the resurrection. And he's building up. Okay, now what? So what? What? Therefore, and we could kind of expect him to say, celebrate, enjoy the fact that you're going to be resurrected. What does he say? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. He says, be confident. Be absolutely positive of the truth of the gospel. Be absolutely positive of the resurrection, of Christ's resurrection, and that you are going to be resurrected. Do not, let nothing move you from that point. Nothing change you from that truth. Steadfast, unmovable. Always abounding. Always overflowing. This is an abundance. This is too much. It's flowing out of you in the work of the Lord. How is that connected? How is the work of the Lord connected to the fact that we're going to be resurrected? Because, remember the argument? That if there's no resurrection, this is all meaningless? If there is a resurrection, and, it, and we're confident in that resurrection, and we're sure of that resurrection, then it's all meaningful. It has purpose. Paul is concerned at the beginning of the chapter that maybe his work with them was in vain. Maybe it's empty. Maybe it didn't mean anything. He taught all this stuff and... Apparently, they weren't sure about the resurrection. How did this happen? Maybe... 
It didn't mean anything. But he knows here. Oh, it wasn't in vain. It has meaning. Why does it have meaning? Not because of what I've done. Not because of your response. But because of what Christ does in me and through me. And I'm assured of that by the resurrection. So I can know that my work for the Lord doesn't just end when I die. It has purpose. It has meaning. It is working a weight of glory in heaven. It has a future meaning. So our resurrection is not simply, oh, pie in the sky when I die. No, it has a practicality for today. That I live out my confidence that I am going to be resurrected by living differently, by serving the Lord now. Because it has meaning. It has future. It has eternal consequences. Paul lives this out by giving the gospel. He's saying that his giving the gospel, sharing the gospel, is not empty. It's not in vain. Why? Because of the resurrection. Because it's going to last. It's going to have eternal value. We must be doing the same. We must be speaking of Christ, of His work, of His resurrection, of His forgiveness and His payment for sin. The solution to the brokenness that Tim sees, that Nick was talking about today, the solution for that is Christ. And we have good news for broken people. That's been given to us, entrusted to us as His witnesses, as His followers, as His disciples to share that and give that out. But also, the work of the Lord is serving one another. Serving our neighbors, loving our neighbors as we love God and as we have been loved Look at Matthew 25:35 as we close. Matthew chapter 25, we'll start in verse 35. Christ is speaking here, for I was in hunger, and you gave me meat, I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. Naked you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, Lord, when saw you, we, when saw we thee a hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee, we thee in a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick, or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily, I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto one of the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. In this church, we have people who are involved with safe families bringing in children into their home. To help with broken situations. We have those who are going into 
the prison and bringing light to very, very dark situations. We have youth ministry. We have nursery. We have a number of ministries that we do in this body. Always abounding, overflowing in the work of the Lord means that we are serving one another, serving our community. We just had a meeting we're calling Community Circle to serve our community, to love them, to share the gospel with them, to show them Christ's love, to show them the family that Christ has made us and be like a brother and a sister to them. There are opportunities to minister here. There are opportunities to abound in the work of the Lord. To show, I am so confident in my resurrection that I'm going to live like it today. I'm going to demonstrate that. That I do not have to make a paradise for myself here on earth because I have an eternity of paradise awaiting me. So I can serve others. I can sacrifice for others. I can put myself in difficult situations. Why? Because I know what my Savior has done for me. And I know what He's going to do for me. And I am so so assured of that. That I can step into this brokenness confidently... Because I'm confident, not in myself, but I'm confident in the work of the Savior that has saved me from sin and from that same brokenness. That's the beauty of this. That's the practicality of this. That's the, the, the in this moment, right now, the presence of this, the present tense, that we are to be working abundantly. We need to be praying. We need to be planning. We need to be dreaming of what God can do through this body, through these ministries, and more like them. I encourage you this morning, if you are wanting to to get involved with any of this, if you are wanting to give water and food to those who are sick, who are weak, or, or young, or helpless, Go to, go to Nick. Talk to him about safe families. If you want to, to visit those in prison, talk to Dennis. Connect with each other. If you want to treat someone, a stranger, as if he's a brother, if you want to take a stranger in, go to community circle and love on people. Show them God's love. Show Him the good news of Jesus Christ. But folks, all of this is an expression of the fact that we are assured of our salvation. We are assured of our resurrection because our Savior has already broken the trail. He's already laid the path for us because He's done it. He's gone there and we are following Him. And that's, that's what we hope in. That's what we trust in. That's what we believe. Let's close in prayer.
Oh, Father. Thank You for Jesus. I pray that we would see Him in His truth in every aspect of our lives. Whether we are alone, whether we are with one another, whether we are with strangers, that we would humble ourselves, that we would know that we cannot stand on our own two feet, but we stand We stand on what Christ has done. Lord, change us. Not just when we're resurrected, but change us today that we will truly be abounding in work that is meaningful, that has eternal purposes. That that will overflow from this body, from this family. Lord, we don't deserve any of this. We deserve hell. We do not deserve to be resurrected. We do not deserve to inherit your kingdom. And so we don't pray in our name. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.